You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, you are going to hear the most inspirational story you've heard for a long time. Suzanne Laidlaw has a serious story to tell, a dramatic, unimaginably dramatic, life-changing event. Years of pain, struggle, and challenges that followed, and the incredibly positive decisions that she made to shape a life for herself, those she loved, and the people she works with. And to top it all off, Suzanne is a wonderful storyteller. You are going to love this. Here's Suzanne Laidlaw. Suzanne Laidlaw, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Well, I'm excited, Suzanne. I've just read your book and I have to say it is really very, very good. I had trouble putting it down. Your story is remarkable. I love the way you tell it. You're, uh, this is probably doesn't need to be the topic of the podcast, but you're quite a gifted writer. That This isn't your first run at writing, I'm guessing. So f- those of you who are listening, Suzanne has an amazing story and it's a story about business. It's a story about being a really successful business coach and having successful businesses. But one of the themes in Suzanne's book is that every part of your life is connected. You can't just have a business life and a a personal life. Everything is, is part of the one life. So for that reason, Suzanne, I would love for you to tell us the story of the event that shaped your life as an adult what happened on that night and what happened in the months and the years afterwards. And just as interestingly, the path that that took you down. And then of course, we're going to get into some really hard lessons, the things that you've learned being a coach for such a long period of time, the common barriers that your clients have and how you help them overcome them. And then we'll hit our listeners with those five takeaways at the end. But Suzanne, let's start, if you don't mind, with that incredibly powerful story that happened to you when you were a very young adult. Yes. And, you know, I can feel my heart racing every time I I relive this story, every time I tell this story. And even when I was going through the book with my husband, we both had tears and he's like, that's over 30 years ago and we both still have tears when, you know, we go through what happened. Basically, we were coming back from a a theatre. I just happened to be having a euphoric moment that I remember clearly thinking that my life had all of a sudden just become perfect because I'd bought our first home, which was a dream that we'd always dreamt of, that we'd actually achieved and um, and was so excited with that and was newly married, was madly in love with my husband, also called David, and was just feeling a little bit scared. It was so perfect, but also thinking, wow, maybe this is what all adults feel like. They feel like they've made it if they've got a husband and a job and a house, which to me were the three big things that I wanted as an as a early 20-year-old. And then came home, went to bed in this amazing feeling of happiness and gratitude. And then my husband was too tired to come to bed. So he said, look, I'll just sit up and have a nightcap. He went to get a can of petrol that my dad had left with the mower was just thinking of doing a little silly thing that ended up being a freak accident that changed our world forever from that day forth. He was going to take a cup of petrol and put it on the open fire to just start the fire quickly. 
but unbeknown to him or to me, that if a can of petrol is not grounded and you've got static electricity in the air, so he had a jumper that was woolen and a nylon trench coat. And you know yourself, if you take the nylon trench coat off or you have a nylon hairbrush, if you turn the lights off, there's a lot of sparks. Static electricity can be quite powerful. So at the same time, he's holding a can of petrol in the hand as he takes the lid off. And especially if there's fumes in a can of petrol, you shouldn't ever have a half a can of petrol. That's dangerous. Again, I didn't know that. So he's taking the lid off. It's not grounded. He's holding it. And the static electricity immediately ignited the can of petrol and boom, it exploded in his face. And it gives me goosebumps and, and makes my heart just race even thinking about that moment because his whole body was doused in petrol from head to toe. It gives me goosebumps hearing it. And I've just read it. Everything you just said, I already knew, but it still gives me goosebumps hearing you tell the story. You know, that is just amazing. Tell us what happened next. Tell us about the consequences for David and you and Mm -hmm. your life. So basically, I was fast asleep and woke up with him screaming. And all I could hear was him screaming, Susie, Susie, save me, save me. And it still rings in my head. I can, you know, hear that so clearly. And I woke up, didn't know what was going on, couldn't get out of the bedroom because we'd been painting all the rooms and couldn't find the door handle, the light switch or anything eventually found it, flung the door open. Our bathroom is, is, and still is, we're in the same house now. We've been here for 30 odd years, right in front of the bedroom. And so as I opened the door, boom, like two feet, a hallway width in front of me, I'm faced with my husband, fully alight from head to toe, standing in the shower because the shower goes on top of the bath. And so he's standing in the bath, water is like exploding everywhere. There's just water going everywhere, but it wasn't making any difference. It was almost roaring, the, the fire, and it was like his whole body was made of, I don't know, candle wax or something, but horrible. It was all, he was all melting and black and it was, yeah, it was like a night, it was horrible. It was like a nightmare. And so I just picked up a towel quickly, as quickly as I could, smothered the, the flames, stopped the flames, and then dragged him out of the house and got him in the swimming pool. Luckily, we had a salt water pool. That was just the first thing I could think of was get him out of the house. The house was on fire. And then rushed to and banged on the next door neighbor's house for help. Didn't wait for them to answer or anything. Just banged and screamed for fire and an ambulance. And then, you know, everything, you know, all, eventually all the services came. But I think the worst thing I remember at that time was standing in the pool with him and it just seemed like forever. It just... I just, you know, Perth nights, those still, still really, really quiet nights. And I just kept thinking, surely I could hear, you know, some kind of ambulance or fire engine coming, but it just seemed forever. It was probably five minutes, but I don't know. It just seemed to be forever. One of the images that you paint really clearly in the book is is the vision of watching David's skin just melt away, his ears, his hands right across his whole body, just the skin, leaving a trail of skin on the wall as he exited the house. It was horrible. And I can see the emotion in you now. 30 years later, that kind of experience, I can't imagine, will ever not be emotional. No, and and it's funny. I think I hid it away. It was only probably about five years ago that somebody asked me to present at a conference as as the opening speaker. 
And I'm like, yes, I'll talk about business and blah, blah, blah. And then the week before they got back to me and they said, no, we want your real story, your wow. life. And I was like, oh, no, I've never told that. Oh, no. Wow. And I was and really you, How did you go? I how cried. did you go the first time? Yeah. yeah, and they cried. I had about 120 yeah. people sitting there crying. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a good experience to finally share. I had people come up to me and say, you know, that's made a difference to my life. And, and then from then on, I've thought, well, why not share it to help other people if I can help them? Of course, because it's not just a, a horrendous story. It's not just a story of a, a terrible incident. You have built on that. And, and in, in some ways, not directly, you, you've made the lessons of that your life's work. And that's, a, that's the really powerful thing about your story. Let's just stay on that period for a little bit longer, if you don't mind, because mm-hmm. one of the things I really enjoyed reading in the book was about your husband's recollection when he finally woke up in intensive care, but he was no longer in, in ICU. I don't, I, there's yeah. no difference. He, so he was, he'd gone from the really serious place to the burns. Yeah. Tell us about what he knew. So- so he'd been in the in the ICU where he was unconscious for days. For three His weeks. Parents- he was, yep, three weeks he was in ICU and then he got transferred to the isolated burns, sealed burns unit after that. And his parents had come from Scotland yep. and, um, and were, yeah. were only able to look at him through the glass. You were the only yep. person, after yep. they work out he was going to survive, which was yep. touch and go, you yep. were the only person allowed inside the glass. He yep. was unconscious the whole time. Yep. But then weeks later in the burns mm-hmm. unit, Tell us what he told you. Yeah, well, this is spooky too. This is really weird because he is the ultimate atheist. Um, You know, well, not now, but he was then the ultimate atheist. And, you know, and going back before the burns, probably, you know, worth mentioning that before we went married in Melbourne, we went to see Zig Ziglar. And this is before we were married. We just got engaged. I must have been 18, 19, 18, something like that. And Zig Ziglar made us dream, our dream vision of our dream life. And have you ever seen or heard of Zig Ziglar talk? I have He's an American and he's very expressive. He's like, you dream your wildest dream and dream more and dream further. And he's amazing. He's passed away. Yeah, exactly. He's passed away now. But we were very, I think, second row from the front or something. And we're writing down, you know, buy a house, you know, have children. Now dream some more you know, buy a Jaguar, run a marathon, now dream more, backpack the world, you know, buy a holiday house, restore a house, all these things we kept dreaming because he just kept pushing more and now 20 years, 30 years, 40 years and he just kept pushing and pushing. So we had these notes from this workshop and that was fun and when we didn't look at them again and, you know, that was something that we did for personal development and it was a great experience. So then Moving back to the Burns unit, the first time David speaks to me, he says, I had some really, really spooky, weird, weird drug-induced dreams. It's been really weird. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's what drugs do and all the, you know, the drugs that he was on. And he said, there's one that was really, really weird. And I'm like, okay, you know, what happened? And he said, I was in this glass room and you were sitting there and my mum and dad were behind the glass. And he's like, you know, I know it was a dream because, you know, they live in Edinburgh, they don't live here. And he goes on to explain what happened. He explained that everything stopped, that I was there and that he ha- he was above his body. And that he said, I got to see my body. And he said, I saw that I'd really badly messed up and saw that 
like his head was like a medicine ball. It was probably three times the size of mine and it was black and split and weeping. You couldn't tell it was a human's head. There was no eyes. So they, were, they were all charred over. It was all, oh, there was, you couldn't see nose. You couldn't see mouth, nothing. There was just a little hole for the breathing tube. But there was no actual resemblance of anything like mouth, eyes, you know, anything like that. And so he said, I saw how bad my body was and I had a choice. I had a choice to stay or go and I knew it would be hard. And then I said, okay, and I'm asking him more and more about it. And I said, you know, so, you know, what did you do? And he said, well, I just started our journey and I kept seeing all of those things that we planned. I kept seeing our journey had just begun and we planned out 30 years, 40 years, kids, businesses, backpacking the world, homeschooling kids, having an antique motorbike, all these millions of things, you know, helping an orphanage, all these things that we'd massive list. And he's like, I couldn't let you down. He said, we just started and I could see you next to me and I just couldn't let you down. And the love from you and the love from my parents, he said, I just knew it was going to be really awful because he said I could see my body was really messed up, but I just chose to, you know, to come and, and face it. And so I'm listening to this, the tears are pouring down. I never forget what I was sitting in the burns unit and I said to him, mate, that wasn't a dream, that happened. And he's like, well, how? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, well, that's the exact room. I did actually take him to that room when he was in a wheelchair, when he was able-bodied to see, and it was the room. And his parents had left uh, probably, I don't know, a couple of weeks before I spoke to him, they had to go back, which was gut-wrenching saying goodbye to them. But they never even got to see their son awake, conscious before they left. So yeah. <laughs> How hard has life been just on a physical level for David since that night, thirty years ago? Very hard. And it's still, I think, hard every day. It's because he's a burn survivor. He was thirty percent burns, a third degree burns to his body. And that's a bit of a tipping point of whether people live or die because of, you know, it's a it's like um a, a covering of our skin. It's a, you know, it's like a protective, you know, of our body. It's the biggest um, organ in our body. Exactly. So that is a bit of a, a turning point there. So that's why until day three, they thought that he was a gone. I didn't know, but they thought he was a gunner because he was. And that's interesting because they were letting all of his friends come everyone. in to see him because they thought he was going to die. Yep. But, it, all but of when saw him. he made, when, when he went through that period where he actually did die yep. and he came back to life and that's probably when he had that experience that he later told you about. Yep. Then they restricted it to only you in the room because they yep. thought, actually, this it's guy's going to live. So we've yeah. got to take better care of him now. That's a really interesting, but a really nice practical kind of approach from the hospital. Yeah, because everyone wanted to say goodbye to him and it was it was very upsetting. But it was just weird the way, you know, as soon as he died and came back and they did confirm that he had, you know, you know passed for some time, only, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds or a minute seemed like forever, but you know, whatever it was, he had passed for that time. But it was funny the way then I had to scrub, I had to gown, I had to put a cap on, mm. and none of that was before. Wow. Have, do you think David's ever regretted that decision he made? Yes, he would have because of what he put me through because it wasn't just the burn or the recovery as with reading the book. It was the self-destructive path that he went through for the 10 years that followed the accident. But, it, you know, it, in retrospect, when we talk about it, it was the worst thing that ever happened to him. But it was also the best thing that ever happened to him because it's made him 
the human being that he is today, which is, you know, a wise person that, you know, a lot deeper, a lot more understanding, a lot more empathetic and get just quite, quite the experiences that you get from being through a life-threatening ordeal really humble people to an extent that no one will ever understand if they haven't been through that. I mean, you've probably known people yourself that have been through, you know, traumas or cancer or something, and they're just a lot, often a lot more connected afterwards. Some perspective. Yeah, they don't get so upset about little things and more accepting of people and I think less judgmental and and less filled with ego. I mean, he was good looking and had them taken overnight and able-bodied to unable-bodied. I mean, as you heard in some of the book, in, in the book, some of the things, you know, that we had to go through with, with our relationship and intimacy, you know, puts our depth of relationship at a different level that, that most couples wouldn't have to go through. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. You're very open about your husband, not just the accident, but the lifestyle he led for, as you say, the 10 years afterwards and the struggles he's had. Personally, how did he feel about the book? I made sure that he was happy with it. And I think if it had been 10 years ago, he might have found it difficult. Not to say that he doesn't still find it difficult now, but I think his purpose now is to help other people. And so as a personal trainer and as a yoga teacher, when people come to him and have got challenges that they're avoiding or challenges that they're um, getting consolation out of maybe alcohol or um, any kind of substance or drug abuse or even, you know, maybe obesity or food addictions or whatever, he has the understanding to help them through that because he knows what it's like to be in a dark hole and he's now helping people change their lives and he just loves it. It's just so heartwarming for him to help people change their lives. Tell us about the decision you had to make as a couple or the series of decisions you had to make as a couple. Once David came out of hospital and you tried to pick up the pieces of your life and and get on with things and, and create a new future for yourself, you eventually decided that the best answer was to start your own business, which must have seemed counterintuitive at the time when you needed security you needed something to lean on. You almost took a, a risk on top of this incident. Tell us about that decision-making process. Well, I suppose it was our backs were against the wall and it was the you know Keating recession that we were meant to have. So the interest rates on our you know first home mortgage were about 18%. And he was not in a good place because he was starting to go back to work and he looked very scarred. And so people gasping at you all the time was uncomfortable. People staring at you was uncomfortable. He was still in jobs garments, which are the pressure garments, head to toe, and he even had a face mask. And that's, that's confronting. pretty confronting for people. We're in a sales job. So he yeah. was in a sales role. And so that's he tough. really just wanted to hide. And me with a newborn baby, a six-week-old baby, I wasn't really employable either. So it just happened to be that the universe came up with an idea which was a distributorship for a product that my dad was happy for us to run out of his backroom of his office. So we thought, well, if you know, if it's going to be, we might as well do it together and have the family around us and be together and go for it. And with 
us working together and having that much more support, he didn't feel like he was having people gasp at him all the time and he didn't feel, you know, like he was being confronted because of how he looked or because he, he couldn't move his hands very well. He's, they nearly amputated his fingers and still don't work well today. So it was hard. And how successful was that business? Where did it all lead? What lessons did you learn? Tell us the story of that first business. It was really about utilising our connections and our knowledge to help give people a service where there was a gap in the market. So we'd, we noticed that there was a gap in the market that wasn't being filled with the industry that, that David was already in. And so it happened to be that you know we got a distributorship for WA that wasn't in WA and then we just sat on the phone and there was no such thing as computers at the time. So it was sending out letters and it was sitting on the phone calling people and using our connections and our referrals to say, hey, you know, we've got this product now. Is it something that you could use? You know, could we look at supplying you? And so that's what we did. We just sat there and you know, I never, I, I remember, you know, when my baby would want to change feeding from the left to the right side, I'd be like, oh, excuse me, I'm just going to get another call. Thank you. Just hold on. And I'd like quickly. Swap the baby like, over. That was when I was guaranteed for no baby noises if, if, <laughs> if he was feeding, <laughs> if he wasn't in the, in the cot. So yeah, it was, it was really good having my parents around as well. That was really good because they were just wonderful. And it just gave us a big leg up. But it ended up that we bought our own place a year later. We got rent-free for a year, bought a tiny little cottage that was cheaper than renting in West Perth, a little old um, 1900s railway cottage, and ran it out of there for a good 12 years and then eventually sold it. And it was a wonderful, an absolute wonderful business. We had an amazing team that we just loved to bits and it was, yeah, it was, it was a really good business. And how did the coaching come about? How did you find yourself in the world of being a business coach? That was my reinvention of myself. <laughs> so this is probably how many, 10 years or oh, 10 years on after that it would have been. So I've always loved sport and I've done sports coaching since I was probably an early teen. Probably, I think I started swimming coaching when I was first year high school, so 13. So love, always loved coaching. I've coached triathletes a lot. I've done 20 years of triathlon. And then once we sold our business, after we had ran it successfully for about 13 or 14 years, we found there was a lot of big competitors that were cutting the prices. So we decided that, you know, we wanted to change and we sold it. And I had to reinvent myself. So I thought, well, what do I love? Because I'd been basically supporting David in his knowledge and, and his field. It, you know, that was just me being supportive. And I thought, well, I love coaching because I do it through sport and I love business and I'd had a business coach in our business. So I rang him and said, hey, you know, Hank, what do you reckon? And he's like, great idea. And so did some due diligence and then eventually decided to buy a coaching license. And, um, and again, at that time, our backs were against the wall because the GFC had just hit. So we were in the tune of about I don't know, close to $2 million debt and had a, yeah, a whole house full at home. And yeah, I had to work out how I was going to reinvent myself best. And I and thought when, helping other people, why not? <laughs> and when you have retired, no, it was me interrupting you, Suzanne. 
When you've retired and, and the career is all said and done, will you look back on the coaching bit and, and say, that was that was my calling, that was the bit, that was my real career? Everything else led up to that and informed that? I would have said that, yes. But now that I've written the book and my passion now is to be a millionaire of hearts, I want to touch a million people's hearts because for 10 years I've been coaching only a small select group of people one-on-one and I'm thinking, I want to help more people. How am I going to do that? Yeah, and so the way of me doing this to help more people because, you know, I can't live forever. I want to leave a legacy that will last longer than than my life. And people, I often hear them, you know, bandy that millionaire thing and I'm thinking, well, you can't take it with you when you die. You can't leave it here. It's not, it's only gets more stuff that we have to chuck out anyway. So I feel that it's much more worthwhile to have a legacy that I can leave after I go. So my, I don't know, probably about five years ago, I said, that's it, I'm going to be a millionaire of hearts instead. And that's, you know, really why I wrote the book. So I would have, so now it might be the book there. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. This is it. It's all bit, but but that's the thing. There's a, there's, it's just building always on the last piece, isn't it? And the coaching thing built on the businesses that you ran and everything that you learned from that and all of your personal development and all of your sporting achievements. And now this work as an author and a speaker is building on all of those years as a coach. So it makes perfect sense. And, and I can see the the flow of all of that. Hey, Suzanne, I'm really fascinated. I'm always fascinated to ask coaches this. When you're working with with your, what do you call them? With your coaches? Clients. clients? Yeah, that's My the word clients, I'm looking for. Yeah. That's <laughs> what, all right. What's what are the most common barriers when when people start talking about what they really want out of life? And I bet that's a process in itself to get them to really think about what they yeah. want out of life. What are the most common barriers that people see themselves? I think their mind. That's the first. What do you mean by that? Because they often say, you know, what's the difference between me and somebody who's very successful? And I look back and say, well, you know, are you planning? Or is your vision to be that successful? Or is your vision to just be a little bit more than you are now? So it's really getting, you know, that decision of where you want to go to and getting that, you know, open-minded thinking to say, wow, you know, this is how big I want to go. Or, you know, I'm not saying big is good, but I'm just saying that's the biggest barrier I feel, or that's the first barrier is like the gates to success is someone has to be clear of what success looks like before they can achieve it, whether it's, you know, swimming to Rottnest or whether it's having a successful relationship, whether it's having a successful business or a successful marketing engine or an amazing team. We need to be clear of what is that success? How does that look? How does an amazing relationship look to you? You know, what is a a fantastic, you know, achievement to you? And then we can get some clarification around where you are now and what needs to happen in between and how are we going to measure that. When people talk to you about their dreams, do you so often on the inside think, come on, dream bigger than that? They they talk about these wild dreams that they've got that in your mind are just an incremental step from where they are now, whereas you want them to have a really big dream, something really grand. I may have, David, but I don't anymore. Because everybody is so different and it's what makes their heart sing. I mean, I had a lady, or oh, would have been a couple of years ago, I think I actually wrote about her in the book, 
And it's a prime example. She had inherited a business and was working huge hours to build this up because it was her family business and it was you know, about, you know, wanting them to think she'd done really well, but they weren't actually in Australia anymore. So it was, you know, it wasn't necessary to do it for them. They didn't need it. So she was working her butt off and then, you know, she was exhausted. She wasn't seeing her children. She was crying a lot. And I'm like, look, just tell me, what is it that makes your heart sing? You know, is this business making lots of money? Is that making your heart sing? And she said, no. And I said, well, what does make, you know, what, what is it that makes your heart sing? And she said, I just want to be able to go home and be with my children. They're only two and three. And I just want a business to be able to give me enough income to support my family so that I can only work 20 hours a week and see my children while they're young. And I'm like, great, that's the plan. So we did. We worked out a business plan that allowed for an income for her, allowed time to get other people to do the work to get clarity of what the expectations were. And then within a year, she's ringing me up, Susan, I'm at the playground. I'm so happy. It's two o'clock. I'm playing with the kids. I love you. My life's changed. This is amazing. Now, to me, that makes my heart sing just as much as the guy that rings me and says, we've gone global. I've got my first invoice and it's $2 million. To me, that make, that brings my heart so much joy because it, it's their success that they wanted not mine. And I can't want success more than them. I can't, it's not my success, it's theirs. That's a really good lesson for me. So it's, it's not about dreaming big, it's about dreaming right for you. And that's the process is understanding what is right for you. That's very interesting. Suzanne, we've already talked for a long time and we're going to have to wrap it up very soon. Your story is so absorbing. You're going to hit us with five things that we can all take away, five ideas that you have that, that we can remember and uh, have a tangible impact on our life. Talk us through those. I think I've already mentioned the first one, which is get a very clear vision of what success looks like for you in your life. It's really important to have that quiet time to just sit and get into your, I suppose, deep soul of what that looks like for you. It might be your body. It might be your fitness. It might be your business. It might be your team whatever it is, you need to be clear on what success looks like. So many people, you know, spend hours looking at photos of wedding dresses or spend hours looking at photos of holiday destinations or house plans, but don't spend that much time planning their business or planning Mm. their relationship or planning their life or their own professional development. Mm. They don't do that. Yet they'll spend hours looking at, you know, photos on Instagram of dresses. Well, hold on. You know, that's, it's not as rewarding. So get clear on what success looks like in your life. The second one down is look after yourself. And often I find business owners forgetting to look after themselves because whatever success you decide, whether it's a business success, whether it's sporting success, whatever success you decide in whatever element of your life, whether it's a master's you're going to do or write a book, you're the only vehicle that can do that. It's your mind, it's your energy, it's your focus, your clarity, and your body. That's it. So, so often business owners will say to me, um, or clients or friends, oh, God, I've got no energy. I'm so tired. I'm like, okay, what time did you go to bed last night? Oh, 11 o'clock. I did a Netflix binge. Oh, did you drink much alcohol? Yeah, I need two bottles of wine. Okay. So, we're expecting, you know, Ferrari outcomes but we're putting, putting in you know, terrible, yeah, exactly. So, and this means 
what we put in our mind, what we put in our body, you know, how much sleep we give our body, the people we surround ourselves. So, you know, that's my second tip is look after your body holistically like it's the most important thing to you in the world. And I'm not because being egotistical, is. but it is, you know, and I get up from 5 till about 7.30, 8 o'clock. That's the time I exercise. That's the time I meditate with my husband. That's the time we have breakfast. And I don't start work till after that's happened because it just sets, it's like having your car fueled up, cleaned, serviced, ready to go. It's like Stephen Covey's old metaphor about the the woodchopper sharpening his axe. You know, you can yeah. kid yourself into thinking that you're too busy. You've got too many trees to cut down. I don't have time to stop and sharpen my axe, but we all can see how ridiculous that sounds straight away. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that would definitely have to be my next tip. The next one here is have a plan. So we've got clarity of what success looks like and we've got our vehicle of how we're going to get that, whether it's a marathon or uh, turning over 5 million or a great team or whatever it is. But let's take stock of where am I now and let's make a plan of how I'm going to do that. Because, and when you do the plan of how you're going to do that, it's important to put the time in your calendar to actually do that. There's not much point in having a wonderful plan to run a marathon if you're actually not going to put those times to do those runs in the calendar, because that's often a gap. People will do a great business plan, but they don't actually put the time to do the strategy implementation in their calendar. And if they don't, well, nothing's going to change, is it? It's just nice having a fancy plan. A fancy plan is going to get you nowhere. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if somebody with, you know, a very simple plan that's implemented well could have a much better outcome with someone with a massive fancy plan that never is not executed. And we all have had that experience in organizations large and small of slaving over the strategy and then not even having a plan as to how we're going to execute that strategy. I think a lot of people listening have been part of those kind of experiences. All right, so we're going through your your five takeaways. Number one is have a clear vision, success for me in my life. Number two is to look after myself holistically. Number three is to have a plan and, and make time to execute that plan. What's number four? Number four for me is to have a positive growth mindset because if you have a plan and you're not looking at that plan with a, a positive growth mindset. You know, I often talk about Carol Dweck's book, you know, her her mindset book and the difference between a fixed and a growth mindset. And you, you might have met people where they say, oh, they'll never change or it'll never happen. You know, oh, they, you know, they're useless. They'll never do anything. So they're people with fixed mindset. So we're talking about if we have this great plan, this great vision, we need to look at it with a growth mindset, looking at saying, How can we do this? We've had COVID happen. Okay, well, what is in our control? What can we do while we're stuck in, you know, in our houses for six weeks? Well, we can update our systems. We can, you know, write an amazing marketing plan. We can communicate with our team. We can update our job descriptions. We can contact all of our clients. There's a lot you can do. We can look at other products. We can research the internet. There's so many things you can do rather than sit back and go, oh, well, this has happened. So I'm going to be really negative and I'm going to have a fixed mindset and say, I'm going to go under and nothing's going to happen. So if you're looking at things with that growth mindset, you're going to get yourself a much better outcome. You're never going to get a great outcome with a negative attitude. 
That idea of the the fixed and the growth mindset is one of those really powerful, simple ones that I don't know about you, and obviously the same for you. When I heard it or read about it, it's just like, wow, yeah, that is one of the things that separates people. And and as you're moving through the world and and interacting with people, you can kind of get a sense. You know, someone has this overpoweringly growth mindset, and you can see that's one of the real positives. That's why they're always bounding after the next thing, always getting better and growing as a person. And then sometimes you come across someone who really does, you know, that fixed mindset epitomizes their behavior, their their fear of change, their reluctance to do new things, their their narrow view of the world, fixed and growth mindset. It's one of those really powerful concepts. What's the number five, Suzanne? What's your last one? It's been very instrumental in every single thing I've done through my business and through my sporting and even relationships in each essence of my life is not to be too proud to ask for help. You know, when we started our business, you know, my dad offering us a room for free, you know, when COVID hit, I had so many friends say, you know, I said, I've got to run my business for my home. They said, Hey, Suze, we've got an office. You know, you can come here if if you need an office to have meetings. And, you know, when I was sick in hospital, many friends dropped food off and for, to say, here, here's a casserole for, for you and the family. Often people are too proud to ask for help and there's so many people out there that get far more benefit in helping because, you know, it's the old, you know, giver's gain law of reciprocity and you just get such a wonderful, you know, echo back when you help somebody. So in allowing people to help, you're helping them. So no matter whether it's if you're having uh, challenges in your fitness, challenges in your work and challenges in relationships, asking those that have you know, traveled the road before you of, you know, I'd love to have a coffee or, you know, I I need some help. I'm really struggling here. You know, I remember many times with friends when David was deep dive into alcoholism and hating himself and everything about what had happened to his life. You know, I'd sit and sob with my girlfriends and just having someone to cry in front of without them getting upset or judging you as weak or anything else. It's just such, you know, a fabulous gift you can give to somebody by allowing them to help you on whatever journey you're going on. People are so generous, aren't they? They're they're more generous than we reflexly give them credit for being. Yeah. So that's my, my, uh, everyone's helped us along the way. Even in this book, I've had the most amazing people offer to help and give their ideas. And because, you know, I've never done anything like this before. So yeah, it's really important to allow people to, you know, that have traveled the road before you to share their experiences and their wisdom. Well, it is an incredible story. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you're quite the gifted writer. I couldn't put it down. It really just flows. You just sort of look at it and your eyes read it for you. It's a brilliantly written story. And I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Suzanne Laidlaw, thank you so much for being on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you very, very much for having me. And um, I've loved being part of it. And that was Suzanne Laidlaw. I don't know about you, but hearing Suzanne's story was the jolt I needed to put some of my own life's challenges into perspective. And it forced me to ask myself, would I be so positive and resilient in that same kind of situation? I love Suzanne's five takeaways. Number one, have a clear vision. What is success for you in your life? Number two, 
think of yourself, look at yourself holistically, the whole bit, all of you. Number three, have a plan. Where am I now? How do I get where I want to go? Number four, take a positive growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. And number five, don't be too proud to ask for help. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Suzanne on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.